1: Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
0: Welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. This week coming to you from Hawaii. On the show this week, a very interesting mix of folks, starting with the Attorney General of the state of uh, Hawaii, Doug Chin, our good pal Shep Gordon, and another surprise guest as well. So first up, talk about in the news. Going back to January 27th, when the when the president of the United States signed that first executive order on the so-called Muslim ban, first out of the gate to oppose it, to challenge it in court was our next guest, the Attorney General of the State of Hawaii, Doug Chen. Mr. Attorney General, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Um, it's been an interesting journey, hasn't it?
1: Yes, it, it sure has. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone would have expected. Uh, to the, the developments to play out the way that it did. But uh, it, it's been an important issue for us to take on.
0: And you didn't hesitate. I mean, you, were the, you guys were the first up to, to challenge.
1: Right. Not at all. I, I mean, th- there were other states that were involved as well. And I have to give credit to uh, states like Washington and Minnesota for uh, really uh, leading the charge. But when the revised travel ban uh, came out uh, in March, uh, we, we looked at it and we realized, uh, look, even even with neutral language, uh, this this entire executive order uh, makes no sense It, it has no, Actual basis in um, trying to protect the United States from terrorists, um, and instead, uh, all it does is seems to discriminate people purely based upon their religion or based upon their nation of origin, and that cut very uh, that cut into a very deep, uh, sensitive area for people from Hawaii.
0: I'm assuming that that when when the revised ban was announced and you looked at the language, it was sort of like, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Nothing really had changed.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and I think what was probably the most uh, discouraging about this whole thing is that this executive order came out. Uh, almost to the day, 75 years after um, President Roosevelt had actually signed his own executive order for national security reasons um, that had resulted in the internment of Japanese-Americans, German-Americans, and Italian-Americans during the Second World War. And um, people in Hawaii uh, that definitely remember, or their, their parents remember, or grandparents, um, or, or remember a time where uh, even U.S. citizens uh, were uh, branded as enemies of, of the nation. Uh, simply because of the the country that they came from, and and uh, this current executive order uh, was a uh, it's a dog whistle. It was a, a, a bad sign that we were going down a, a path that we didn't want to repeat.
0: And of course, within literally hours of that originally signed order back on January twenty seventh, we saw a huge drop in on on both levels on business travel. One hundred eighty five million dollars worth of business travel evaporated in one week. Uh, we saw Uh, Online search dropped 17%, and online bookings dropped 7% from foreigners coming to the United States. Um, And even though the numbers have come back, uh, they've come back only because the airlines are discounting so much, not because people have any less fear.
1: Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head that I think us taking this on uh, isn't just a, a civil rights issue, and that's very important, but but it also goes to the, the very heart of what drives Hawaii's economy uh, today in the 21st century, and that is tourism. That is, that is marketing ourselves to the rest of the world uh, as a welcoming place, a place of aloha, uh, a place that welcomes people from, from all around the world, regardless of who you are. Or, or uh, we, we really want people to... Uh, to visit here. And, you know, anecdotally, uh, I have to say that, uh, that to this day, I am still uh, hearing from people who are saying, look, uh, you know, I- I'd love to travel to your state, um, but I- I'm not sure, or travel to the U.S., but I- I'm not sure if I can do so because uh, the-, the climate uh, is just too much uh, up in the air. I- I'm going to go to Canada instead or, or to Mexico. Um, well, that, anytime somebody makes that decision, they're making a decision not to come to Hawaii.
0: And, you know, people make so many decisions based on the worst four-letter word that starts with F, fear, or their own geographic ignorance. I I have to tell you, we're talking to the attorney Attorney general for the state of Hawaii, Douglas Chin. You're going to laugh when I tell you this, sir, but 7% of Americans think you need a passport to go to Hawaii.
1: Oh, I know. <laughs> well, we get that all the time, and, and in fact, uh, you know, one of the, the trending issues that occurred during this whole uh, travel ban lawsuit was when uh, was when Jeff Sessions was interviewed by a conservative uh, talk show, and, and he said uh, in response to the. Um, injunction that was placed against the travel ban, he, he just said, you know, I'm really surprised uh, that, you know, a judge, a federal judge sitting in an island in the middle of the Pacific uh, could be able to uh, make such a, a big decision. And, and you know, and, and uh, that, that, uh, that caused a, a great uh, hashtag, uh, hashtag island in the Pacific. And, uh, uh, you know, w- with many uh, humorous uh, comments that were made after that.
0: Has somebody reminded uh, the United States Attorney General that Hawaii is a state?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I think it it was, you know, it, I don't know what to say about that, but just, uh, I, I think we've done that for uh, for for many years, and and uh, but but we are a state and and uh, and a great one too. I, I think we're really proud to be to be part of the United States.
0: I mean, you know, when you try to analyze where this is going, let's let's try to walk through this if we can. First, the executive order was the first one was signed on January 27th. You challenged it. It went up to right. the court of appeals. They sustained you. Correct. Uh, then the uh, the Trump administration said, well, "Okay, we're going to revise it and submit it again." They did. Right. You challenged it again, uh, along with other states, um, and then it was sustained. Your your position was sustained again, and yet then it was appealed to the Supreme Court, which then agreed to hear the case.
1: That's right. So we're we're actually set to go in front of the Supreme Court uh, on October tenth. Uh, to uh, to be able to argue on the merits, what the Supreme Court said is they said, well, in the meantime, until we get to uh, October 10th, uh, let's uh, let's split the baby. Let's just make a, a decision that doesn't go to the merits, but basically just says that if you're close family members, uh, you know, you can come into the, the United States. Uh, if you have no connection to the United States, then you cannot. Which actually was pretty cut and dry. But but instead, what happened um, is that in the last six weeks, we've kind of gone down this other side path of litigation where the, uh, the U.S. government was saying that um, was that grandparents didn't count as close family. Well, that started another uproar, and and uh, you know I think amongst many people in the United States, but I think particularly in Hawaii because you know in Hawaii we you know I think probably what you're learning from you know, from your your feature is just how much ohana and and just uh, you know the fact that you know family members uh, can come from uh, all sorts of different uh, all sorts of different relatives, uh, and so uh, you know we we're, we we are still litigating. That, um, as, as well, it, it, gets down to,
0: it gets down to uh, definition and equivalence. I mean, what makes grandmother any less or more important than uncle, or right. or, or brother? Um, right. and, I mean, that's a separate ca- to me. And I'm, by the way, I'm not an attorney; I don't play one on TV. But to me, that's almost a separate litigation.
1: Right. And and re- and really, you know, our, our point was that the Supreme Court was just saying, okay, we're we're going to say if people have no connection to the United States, the travel ban is going to apply to them for now. We're we're going to we're going to let that. Let that happen, um, and the fact that the the DOJ has been you know quibbling over all of these things, it it just it's the environment that we're in. It's this you know take no prisoners. We're going to argue everything and, and take it all to the Supreme Court, and that's just that's unfortunate. And and ultimately, it goes back to you know something that's important to Hawaii's economy, which is which is we want to be an environment um, that it encourages travel and, and gets people to not think about Washington, D.C., or politics or anything like that. <laughs> uh, but it's just a great place to, to be in, and uh, in, in some a place that we're, I'm blessed to be able to call my home.
0: Thank you very much, sir. And coming up, our good friend Shep Gordon, the author of They Call Me Mensch: a backstage tour of Hollywood music. Well, you'll hear about it. In fact, Mike Myers did an amazing documentary about our next guest right after this. a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
0: And welcome back to the Hawaii edition of the CBS Radio Travel (laughs) Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We've gone from the attorney general of the state of Hawaii to an old friend of mine who I've known for, gosh, I hate to say it, 45 years, um, going back to my—he's laughing already. Going back to my days as a correspondent for Newsweek, when I was assigned the task of doing a piece—in fact, the first national piece in Newsweek—on an artist named Alice Cooper, and there I was in Colorado on tour, and then I met his manager, who's now my guest on this show, and also the author. Actually, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a great book called uh, "They." Uh, <laughs> they call me Mr. Mench, a backstage pass to the amazing world of film, food, and rock and roll. Uh, His name's Shep Gordon. Hey Shep.
2: Hey Peter, aloha, welcome back to Maui.
0: Thank you, man. Uh, You know, when you and I first met, I mean, that was 1972 uh, and there I was in Colorado watching Alice on on stage with snakes and, and mascara and watching this phenomenon on tour and, and, uh, and then the strangest thing happened. the story runs uh, it runs in Newsweek <laughs> and, and I have, as many of my listeners know, I have a summer home in Fire Island and I'm, and I'm sitting on my deck one day with, with my mom and all of a sudden I see a seaplane show up and it pulls up and out comes you. You'd rented the house next yeah, to me. <laughs> exactly
2: yeah. and, uh, and it was really funny.
0: It we really you was with
2: your mother's boats. We helped you put your mom's boat in the water that day.
0: Yes, you did. And, and helped me get it out too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, that that
2: well, is, by the way, is, 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 um, still one of the most quoted things when people do talk to me about stuff. Cause in it, you said that, um, I, I signed them because of the negative reaction. Everyone walked down on them. Wow. And that's, that's what I felt was the attraction. And that's, Followed me for years, so that that piece had real power.
0: Well, listen, I'm, in those days, Newsweek had real power. It was uh, real power. I, I was yeah. I was lucky enough to be a correspondent and see the world and yeah. and cover you know breaking news as well as the trends. And the trend that year was yeah. certainly Alice, and he's back. He's back. He's back.
2: He's charted. He in twenty countries this week on his new
0: album. Amazing. And
2: personality. The, it, yeah, that was remarkable remarkable, and he's out on tour with Deep Purple, and sold out houses, and people rocking and roll, and he's having the best time of his life.
0: But your book is, an, I, I recommend it highly, I loved reading it, because where else are you going to read, I mean, I, I think I have a pretty full and colorful life, but Shep, where else do you go from Alice Cooper to the Dalai Lama? I mean, come on.
2: <laughs> Not to mention the chefs.
0: <laughs> and not to you know we'll talk about the chefs because you know here in Hawaii, um, and, and, and there are so many chefs that you were working with here in Hawaii, uh, including everybody from Beverly Gannon to Roy Yamaguchi to Alan Wong to, um, yeah. uh, you know, to uh, uh, oh my God, I'm I'm, I'm missing uh, Merriman and and all Mark those guys,
2: Elman. Yeah, yeah, Mark I Elman, you. who you,
0: yep. it's it, it's it's Mark amazing, it, yeah. it, it's amazing because you took what you did. And we talked today in a very cavalier way about celebrity chefs, in which we have a world where everybody almost is a celebrity chef. But if we go back to the evolution of the term celebrity chef, it started with you.
2: Yeah, very proud of it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and especially here, here was the, probably the greatest challenge of all, because um, there was no real access to media. There was no access to TV, TV. Um, in the early days, in, in ninety, ninety one, ninety two, um, so it, it was, a, and they were my friends. The chefs that I was managing were clients. The local chefs were my friends, so it was a really challenge to get them into the celebrity highway. I was living in Hawaii, and um, finally, some of the other chefs who were really gracious. I got all the guys together, and I said, "Listen, I don't think I can make any one of you a celebrity." But I think we can start a food movement just like Southwest Cuisine, just like Nouveau Cuisine, Hawaiian Regional Cuisine. And out of that, you guys can all become part of that rocket ship that launches. Um, And that was a formation of Hawaiian Regional Cuisine. And Roger Verger, who started Nouveau Cuisine, came in and, and talked to the guys about how you do it. And then Dean Fearing, who was one of the founders of Southwest, came in and talk to them about it. And in their cookbook, their first cookbook, the you know, chefs, they give credit to the few guys for really showing them how, how do you make a local culinary movement, What what are the factors that, that make it successful. And uh, exactly. the rest is sort of history. You know.
0: But these are chefs, by the way, who didn't realize the power that they had.
2: Yeah, no, they. It, it's, but I think every art form is sort of like that. You know, the artist starts off on a one-to-one relationship. So, if it's a uh, Michael Jackson, two generations ago, three generations ago, five generations well, ago, ten, then would have been a wandering minstrel. He would have had a one-on-one relationship with the people he performed for before radio, before TV, before records, and then technology allows an artist to talk to a broader audience, and that's when they can become a celebrity. And in the case of of just about every art form, it takes a while. Painters, it was the printing press that really turned them into mass celebrities. Um, it wasn't. It, w- it was technology, and the same thing with with the chefs. It was television, food network technology, um, packaging technology, so they could get products out. Um, home video technology, so people could actually they could show people how they made the food. Um, so it, it, it's. Um, A lot of it is timing.
0: Of course. And then realizing that, well, it's timing and it's content.
2: And it's content, yeah.
0: And demand,
2: I think. But what I realized is even in the 90s, the demand to get into a, a Charlie Trotter or a Le Cirque or a Spago, you couldn't get in. And demand is the hardest thing to create. So seeing that there was demand, there was, okay, how do you, make these things accessible to a wider audience because, obviously, there's a demand for it.
0: Absolute demand for it. And 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 then, you know, you smartly seized upon that to figure out how to connect all the dots at a time when the mainstream media wasn't really aware of it, and yet they were eating yeah, at they these restaurants. Yeah, didn't care at all. Yeah. No. The only didn't.
2: way they were... The only treatment that the culinary arts got was, I can't even know, restaurant reviews. Um, and that was really it. It was limited to the restaurant space, not to the artist creating the restaurant space. Um, so the famous restaurants were generic. Um, they weren't celebrity, they weren't artist driven. Um, and that was really the, that was my focus was to change that perception. Um, to change it to a, a artist driven, um, art form rather than just a generic. And luckily, we the Food Network really did the heavy
0: lifting. You, boy, you're not kidding. At one point, have you ever figured out, I'm sure you have, how many different shows you had on the Food Network that were represented by your chefs?
2: Well, I think when it started, I had just about every show. <laughs> but I did everything pro bono, so I didn't want more shows. You, you, know, you have to remember the times. When I started, I signed, I think, about 70 chefs, every name you've ever heard of on the first day. Um, Alice Waters, uh, Paul Prudhomme, um, Wolfgang Nobu, everyone, and I, I would maybe the highest earning person in the room was Paul Prudhomme who with spices. Maybe made a hundred thousand dollars that year. Um, wow! There was no scale. So as an as an agent or a manager, you can't make anything. You can't you can't pay for your secretary. You take fifteen percent of a guy making sixty thousand dollars a year. You're taking food out of his mouth, and you're not paying for your typewriters. So there was no reason. There was no sense in me doing it for money. So I just, much easier to do it pro bono. And uh, sort of, you know, I would always say to the guy, I remember the day I, I closed my agency. I was walking down the street with Emerald on Park Avenue. A cab driver hit the horn and screams out, bam! And I said, I think my job's over.
0: <laughs> <I'm out. laughs> well, listen. I remember. I I think this must have been 1992, a party at a restaurant in Santa Monica. Um, at at it was in fact it was Arnold Schwarzenegger's restaurant. It was yeah. called Shotzi. It was that
2: was that was the launch of a regional cuisine.
0: Yeah, and I was there. I still have I still have my chef's jacket from there. By the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was
2: the launch. Uh, yeah.
0: And boy, that that group photo was amazing. Who was in that photo with me? My God, you had everybody from uh, oh my
2: God, everybody up. You, you had everybody from Sam Wolfgang
0: Puck to Sylvester Stallone to Michael Douglas. Everybody I was there.
2: right here. Um, <laughs>
0: unreal. Dan
2: Shepherd who never showed up at anything. Uh,
0: That's Miss true. Hawaii, he was there.
2: Elizabeth, did a hula. <laughs> um, I got the. Uh, We got cooking jackets made up for everyone that the Maui Tourist Bureau paid for. Exactly. Uh, It was a beautiful uh, win-win. It's what I always tried to do. It was a a beautiful win-win situation. Arnold had just opened Shotzi. He was very proud of the food at Shotzi. He wanted to bring some credibility to it. We had had a conversation um, at a Planet Hollywood opening about it. And he said, you know, it's really good food. I, I, I don't want people to think of this as a gimmick. That it, I did it as a gimmick, and I thought about it, and I well, I want to launch Hawaiian regional Cuisine. I always believed in guilt by association, putting somebody famous next to somebody not so famous the fame bleeds off. So I called them up, and I said, listen, I'm launching this culinary movement. I think between us, we can get a lot of people to show up. It's about the culinary arts, which highlights your place as opposed to being just a celebrity place. And it worked out great. It was a really beautiful win-win, I think. Uh, Shotzi got a uh, got an uplift and it certainly launched the line regional cuisine.
0: We're talking to Shep Gordon, the author of uh, They Call Me, Mr. Mensch. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what you've done here in Hawaii because you've lived in Maui how long?
2: 43 years.
0: And they still haven't found out. Back with more. <laughs> on and it's only CV- getting better. <laughs> back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg. Back with more of me and Shep Gordon right after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg.
0: Welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We're talking with Shep Gordon, the author of They Call Me, Mr. Mench, a backstage pass to the amazing world of film, food, and rock and roll, and it's truly an amazing story. There's a great documentary, by the way, done on this, directed by none other than Mike Myers. Uh, so uh, check that out on Netflix or wherever you can find it because it's well worth it. And uh, it's one of those things where you watch it and you go, I didn't know. I had no idea. Really? Oh my God. I mean and, and, and Me too, and, and by I, the way.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I watched it and well, say, oh I didn't know.
0: <laughs> well we're 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 doing this show in Maui. That's where you are, that's where I am. Uh yep. you said you came to Maui forty three years ago. How and why?
2: I came to quit smoking. Um, cigarettes went to Honolulu um, in a very I was not as conscious as I would like to think I am now. I remember throwing my cigarettes out the car window when we drove in from the airport, which I realize now environmentally was a no no. <laughs> um, and um, didn't enjoy Honolulu because I, I ran into a very fast track crowd. So um, I asked a friend of mine, Uncle Tom Moffat, who was the big promoter here at the other islands, and you had a tour going to Maui, and those days they had hydrofoil that went from Maui to Honolulu and Maui. And I took it and put one foot down on the dock and said, "I'm living here the rest of my life." And I found a house that week, and I have, and I, it just gets better and better. And I think part of it is, um, you know, I know you had the attorney general on the same show. Yeah. Part of it is because of our part of it is because of our leadership. Um, still a sane island, a uh, group of islands. Uh, well, we you treat know, people what? with respect. Um, we, we, we treat everyone with respect. Um, there's a, a very low incidence of, of crime against humans. Um, we have the regular crime against property, but for the most part, the humans are respected here, and differences are, are uplifted rather than scoring on. So I'm more than ever and
0: happy to live in Maui. Well, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about is, and you, if you take a look at places like Bermuda, Venice, Barcelona, uh, and Maui, the one thing that the, these four destinations and many others share in common is the idea that they could be loved too much, that they could be overcrowded, that the infrastructure could be challenged and threatened, uh, the resources under siege. Um, you know, you go to Venice, uh and, and you're your your the, the mass of people there everybody by the way carrying a selfie stick it just drives me nuts um, right. <laughs> I, I mean they, i i call them wep- weapons of self destruction uh it, you know more people got, were killed last year by, by selfies than were eaten by sharks or electrocuted or hit by lightning because everybody thinks it's absolutely true it's be, you know they like they lean out the window get hit by a train they fall off a cliff they they uh you oh know God. they Right, oh, because they, they think right because they think that a picture that has to be great has to include them in it, no matter how much is the risk, and off they go. But I just, yeah, wow. Yeah, but you go to the Bridge of Sighs in Venice, and it's like, my God, who died? I mean, it's like, it, everybody's got the selfie stick in there. It's amazing. More people don't die. Uh, you go to Bermuda; they want to do a moratorium on cruise ships because the infrastructure is taxed. They can't handle it. There're not enough bathrooms. Uh, You know, you you take a look at at, 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 in Barcelona, the the mayor there has been saying the same thing. And yet isn't it a double-edged sword that an economy like Maui, which is so dependent on travel and tourism, um, has to now grapple with when is too much, too much?
2: Right. I don't I don't feel it at all in Maui. But, you know, I I live a privileged life and I realize that um, maybe I'm not as self-aware as I possibly could be. But I don't, uh, I'm an avid news and information man, and I really enjoy people. And I don't feel, um, I, there's a strain on the infrastructure, but it, it never feels, at least to me, it's not threatening yet. Um, I haven't seen a big change in lifestyle. I would say Honolulu may be more affected, um, but I think here in Maui, you have to go search I I I live in uh, Kihei. I do a three-mile walk every day in a very tourist area. Wailea. I don't think I've seen ten selfies in the last year. I mean, ten of those ghost sticks in the last year. Maybe ten or twenty. We've had one or two drones that I find really invasive have showed up in the last year or two, but. Sort of look in the eye and say hello when you walk past them on the beach. Um, it's pretty special here, in Maui. I, you know, I, I, I'm, there may be an underside that I'm missing, um, but it seems as if whether whether through planning or just the way it is, it still seems sane. There's no traffic jams. Um, I've been in in town, Kahului, when the boats come in, and it never seems to overwhelm anything. I, I think we, I, I just have come from the Bahamas on the Disney cruise with my kids. Um, so I saw it there, and I've seen it in just about everywhere else. But then somehow I feel, maybe it's because I I have protection, but I just don't feel it when I'm here. It me. Oh,
0: you know, I'm sorry, still so
2: feels
0: I was about to, to, to say, me. I'm stepping on you. Go ahead, step I'm sorry.
2: No, no like a tropical
0: paradise to me. Well, it is. Uh, But let me digress for a second, because you mentioned going on a Disney cruise. Uh, You know, the thing that drives me nuts about a Disney cruise is the ship's horn. Um, (laughs) You know exactly what I'm about to say. I'll do my impression (laughs) of the ship's horn. Most cruise ships or most most ocean liners, when you hit the horn, they go, On Disney, it's Bom, 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 bom. Oh, and and am I right come on am I right mm-hmm. I know absolutely uh yeah. so I was terrified when I first went on a Disney cruise that I would be trapped on a ship for the next seven days singing it's a small world after all <laughs> and I, I, to, I, I, to, to, I had a great yes to my great surprise they did a great job and I I, I didn't feel I had to take hostages it was it was okay
2: yeah no, no, I- it was so far beyond my expectations, especially in the food and uh, and wine areas. Um, well, listen, you three, know,
0: listen, Chef, you know, they had that
2: three sticks. Bob Cabral's three sticks was on the
0: boat. Yeah, but re- and but different. remember, they 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 were never known for their food at Disney. It was basically you know a big stuffed turkey leg and uh, bad oh, mac oh, and cheese. Oh, yeah. I know, yeah. but but on the ships they've got it together. They have, in fact, they have a very good Italian restaurant on the ship.
2: Oh yeah, I thought it was. I had some great. I didn't have anything but great meals, and, and well, I think one of the one of the things that they did, which I at some point hoped that I could institutionalize to some extent in in the restaurants I'm, I'm involved in, is um, especially with children. We had the same waiter and same busboy every restaurant we went to. They followed and they, rec- and they
0: recognized the and they recognized you.
2: So my kids, by the when we left on the fourth day, the five-year-old was crying that she wasn't going to see the waitress anymore. And I, I opened a restaurant with. Roy well, Yamaguchi wait a minute, Shep Shep, Shep.
0: Shep, If I know you, you were crying because you weren't going to see the waitress anymore. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, but I opened a restaurant here recently, humble market kitchen at the Walea Beach Resort with Roy Yamaguchi. And when I came back from the cruise, I said to him, you know, if we could get that relationship with our customers. I don't know how we do it because it's a very different process. But if there's a way in our system to always get them the same people to serve them, to know exactly, like every, after the first night we show up and the drinks that the five-year-old and four-year-old drank were on the table. So if someone's someone's come in 10 times and had the same Sapphire martini and we know they're coming in at eight, if we can have their martini on the table, the little things they did on the boat that, um, really, really impressed me.
0: Exactly. So,
2: yeah. so I think that's again, that, it's part of the whole enhancement of, of all the culinary and service arts. Um, they're just getting better and better and better and more aware and more focused
0: on who the customer well, listen, is. Well, well listen, while, while you're talking about restaurants, I, I got to ask you a couple things. We, I'm just finishing a piece right now uh, for CBS News on the psychographics of restaurants colors that are used size of tables dimensions of tables yeah. comfort of chairs music tempo um menu placement menu fonts all the things that we don't think about that go into the choices that we make oh, yeah. and how and yeah. how fast we make those choices when okay. we go when we go out to eat you know and and you know, I you'll would, never I see, would say, in...
2: I'm sorry no go ahead I I would say uh, it's funny because I I I've been doing a lot of uh, public talks and I come back to this issue and I uh, uh, exactly what you're talking about because um, music art culinary arts they all follow these waves um, and they although on on the surface they may not seem to be attached I think they're all very interconnected in that every generation has to make its own statement and whether they make it as um, going from you know um, from ballads to hip hop, or if they make it going from Frank Sinatra to Alice Cooper, um, the every generation in in the way they dress. Um, nobody in my generation would have pants past their butthole. Um, that's what every kid had. It's whatever the parents hate and don't accept. And in restaurant, that's become so pronounced in that. Um, the hot restaurants now don't take reservations. Reservation was the most important thing to me in my life. I don't want to wait for a table. Right. The communal tables. I would have never been sat at a communal table. The concept to me was like insulting. Um, very loud noise. You know, loud music. Um, all the things that I as a restaurant guy and probably you too, growing up would turn us away from a restaurant. What would have turned us away from music? What would have turned us away from clothes we wore? Now are the things that are happening, and the next generation will change it again. So the things you pointed out, I think are almost more important to attracting business than the actual food. Because I think, just like in art, um, taste is very narrow. Cultural revolutions are very wide. That was the basis of Alice. You know, it would be easier for us to annoy a generation than to produce a hit record. So let's let's focus on getting the parents to hate us. That'll force the kids to like us, and then we can get then we can buy music that works.
0: I love it. Well, we like Chef <laughs> Gordon. I can tell you that. Chef Gordon, the author of They They Call Me Mr. Mensch, great book, great documentary, and of course the owner and operator with Roy Yamaguchi of the humble market restaurant right here. In, uh, in Maui. Hey, chef, thanks very much, man. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Peter. Come back soon.
0: I will, man. And when we come back, a more serious tone, when can a destination be loved too much? We're going to be talking to Albert Perez and his movement right here in Maui. What happens when a destination gets overcrowded, over-touristed, when in fact it depends almost entirely on tourism? Right after this. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it
1: welcome back to the cbs travel hour with peter greenberg
0: And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, coming to you from Hawaii. Our next guest has a lot to say about Hawaii, its current and future state. He is the director of Maui Tomorrow, a a group dedicated to trying to preserve not only the culture, but the direction of an island that last year saw 2.6 million visitors. And those numbers keep growing. Please welcome Albert Perez. Good morning and aloha. When we talk about growth, uh, we look at places like Venice, we look at places like Barcelona, we look at places like Bermuda, just to name a few, and we look at places like Maui, there is a growing movement, a growing awareness, a growing fear, if you will, that growth has gotten out of control. That as opposed to just growth for growth's sake, so many people want to go there. So many people, it's on their bucket list. So many people want to visit and so many people continue to visit that they're in danger of being loved too much. What do you think about that?
3: Well, I think we have a choice. We can either control growth or we can let growth control us.
0: But we first of all have to define growth, right? I mean, growth is not just building a building. It's also are you providing enough of housing for the people who work there? Are you are you providing enough access on the roads? Are you providing enough medical care? Are you providing enough education? I mean, you, you can't just build. It's it's not like the movie Field of Dreams, right? You can't just build it and they will come. That's the problem. If they come, you better be able to support it in a in – a, uh, in, a, in an intelligent way.
3: That's right. And I, I think West Maui in particular, where we are today, is a really good example. Uh, we knew back in 1990 that our, our wastewater system was over capacity. We had an injection well system that was leaking out onto the reef, causing algae blooms, and destroying the reef. So since then... And you could actually measure it. Yeah, over 50% of the reef cover has been lost since then. So... But that but, was
0: that's 27 years ago.
3: Right, but instead of... Instead of addressing the problem, uh, the county denied it, and they're still denying it. Uh, there was an actual clean water violation that was um, issued, and so they're fighting that in court. They've spent over $3 million to fight it instead of using that money to fix the problem.
0: And is the problem fixable? Yes, it is. It's, I mean, the technology's there, right? You, you have to invent the wheel. It's there. right? Right. But let's get down to the sheer numbers. Have we reached the point of diminishing returns where there are too many people coming?
3: I believe so. I believe we have. And I think even some of the uh, hotel operators are starting to realize
0: that. How do, they, how do they know that? There's just too many hotel rooms? Or their resources are being taxed in terms of finding the, uh, enough people to even work for them?
3: I think they're starting to hear from the visitors. So people are getting stuck in traffic. So. When you come over from somewhere that has traffic and you come to Maui, you don't really want to be spending time in traffic, taking an hour to get to your hotel room.
0: Exactly. But it's more than just traffic. It's, it's infrastructure, right? If, if somebody, I mean, I know hotel maids here in Maui who are holding down two and sometimes three jobs. That's right. Because they can't afford to live here anymore. They've been priced out.
3: That's right. And you know, the affordable housing. Keep going. Problem is a little bit tricky. Um, So I think what we need to do is to reserve our infrastructure capacity to build affordable housing out here on the west side of Maui so that people don't have to drive here. That's what's contributing to the traffic.
0: Right, but I'm I'm not, I'll try to be clear on this, you're not lobbying for light rail systems, nobody wants to put a train in, right? Hopefully not, not yet. Not yet. (laughs) You just want better use of four-wheel, I mean, automobiles.
3: I think what we need to do is follow. We have community plans that are quite good, but we keep having uh, we have what I call a development entitlement industry that comes in, and they they make money by creating exceptions to the community plan. So you buy agricultural land at a cheap price, you get it zoned for something else, commercial or hotel or whatever, then you instantly can make a lot of money. But the plan goes out the window.
0: Well, how does that plan go out the window? Somebody's not. I hate to use the word being paid off.
3: I have personally never witnessed anybody being paid off, but I don't know how you would witness that.
0: Well, what I'm saying is I'm not being literal, but if all of a sudden you have agricultural land that suddenly becomes zoned for commercial and everybody knows the minute that happens, the pr- the value of that land goes up, nobody's stupid about it, right? That's right. And in a tourism economy that's fueled almost entirely because the agricultural economy is gone relatively speaking, right? I mean, you've got some places that are growing things, but they don't really have an impact the way tourism does in terms of the sheer dollars that are coming into the system. At what point, what's driving this other than greed? Well, that might
3: be the answer. Um,
0: That was a rhetorical question, by the way. That's not (laughs) Not driving. I just thought I'd share that, yeah.
3: But I'm I'm oriented towards solutions.
0: Me too, me too. Yeah. So give me one.
3: So one of the things that we did a study last year when the sugar came, we figured um, that they were probably going to go out of business soon and they did, and they did, right? So what's going to happen with the 36,000 acres of where land that, that in the middle yeah. of Maui?
0: Which I used to see that belching steam every time I came out of the airport, right?
3: Right. Yeah. Right. So we actually did a report, which I'll leave here if you want, I have a copy for you today. Um, and it talks about uh, regenerative agriculture, basically. So. That soil has been chemically farmed for over 100 years. There is, organic content is way down. And by doing regenerative agriculture, if you increase the carbon content of soils by 2% around the world, you can offset all of the greenhouse gas emissions on the planet. So what my idea is, and I'd like to see somebody take me up on this, is to start doing regenerative agriculture tourism to teach people from around the world how to do that and then send them out like emissaries to get this going and help reverse climate change. Well,
0: you know what, I, I think it's a great idea. Yesterday I was at, the, at where they were doing the sunflowers for biodiesel. Right. What a cool idea that is, yep. right? I mean, that where they, they've taken essentially a, a sort of an unexpected tourist attraction and turned it into something that's actually making sense environmentally. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, and people, but the most important thing is people can connect the dots. Here's, here's the issue at the very base level. You're at a hotel, and there's a little card on your bed that says, please help us save the environment by not washing your towel. I used to laugh because I'd look at the card, it was plastic, right? <laughs> and I used to say, wait a minute, being the cynic that I am, well, if they're not going to wash my towel, why am I spending all this money for the room, right? Be- the hotel did a terrible job of allowing me to connect the dots. Then one day a hotel called, I asked the question, the general manager said to me, come here, I wanna show you something. He takes me down to the hotel laundry. First of all, I've never seen laundry machines this big in my life, right? And then he showed me the amount of detergent and phosphates that had to go into those machines every single day. And then of course you asked the obvious question, where does that water go? And all of a sudden it became clear, but we still hadn't completed the triangle, right? They showed me the problem, they showed me the cost, If they did it that way, the way they wanted to by not washing my towel every day, and yes, they'd be saving money on phosphates and and chemicals and detergent and labor. Well, where is that savings going? How is that being reinvested in the community, right? And they had to connect that dot too. not every hotel did it. But the ones that did got tremendous customer loyalty. Because you are now a part of the solution, as opposed to just looking at a card going, first of all, do the plastic cards but but looking at that going oh now i get it right because if you can understand the process then you then you truly value the product whatever that is so i mean that's really got to be your challenge to get people whether they're visitors or locals to understand this is where it goes you know what happens when you flush the toilet where does it go yeah you know i go back to um, to thailand which tried uh, i'm sure it was well-intentioned to pass an ordinance that no hotel over 60 units could be built unless they had a facility for gray water black water employee housing accessible transportation and then you'd see the this is down in uh, pataya you'd see these 300 room resorts being built that were openly violating the law why were they able to do that because they sold off units parcels of those hotels in 59 unit parcels so nobody was exceeding the 60 and they all thought they were doing great Ask them now how many days a year they close the beach because of all the raw sewage going into the ocean. What were they thinking? So you've got to be able to let people know there's a cause and effect.
3: Yeah. Don't (laughs) just make a rule. Give them a reason to want to
0: follow it. Give them a reason to want to participate in it.
3: Yeah. Right? It's true. And also enforcement is really key. It's something that is lacking in almost every city that I've lived in.
0: Every resort city especially. Right. Right? Because they depend on that income. Right. They don't want to scare people away. It's like them denying, you said what, back in 1990, the runoff into the ocean. That's correct. Right? I mean, at a certain point, guys like me are going to come out with a camera and have visual proof that you can't deny. And then what happens? The damage is even worse because people don't show up to support the economy anymore.
3: Yeah. Or people, the people who do show up don't care about those resources. You know, Um, you might be more familiar with this than I am, but in Palau, they have a real emphasis on quality, tourism, as opposed to quantity.
0: I've been to Palau many times to the Rock Islands. Unbelievable. And by the way, for those people who don't know it, it's in Micronesia, the Northern Caroline Islands. And in Palau, that was the the actual headquarters of the Japanese fleet in in World War II. And if you go snorkeling, wow, you're literally looking down in crystal clear waters over sunken Japanese destroyers, still with car strapped on the decks. It's unbelievable. But they've, they've come up with a program.
3: Yeah. So my understanding, I've been doing a little research, my understanding is that you can't build a new hotel there unless it's a five star. And so by getting the high dollar tourist in, you're actually reducing the impact on the, on the resources and on the local population. And that is exactly the premise. But, that,
0: but what you just said could be argued as elitist, right? It could. I just did. It could, but
3: uh, I mean, that was the initial promise of tourism here on Maui and specifically in Ka'anapali. We're going to develop out here where nobody lived and we're going to keep it high quality so that it won't impact the residents. Well, that was the initial idea and over time that's changed. So we see the result and even the hotel operators now are starting to oppose new hotel development here on West Maui.
0: Well, I would I'm, if I'm a hotel owner, I want to oppose new hotel development. Duh. Right. I mean, that doesn't that could be in Pittsburgh not to be in Maui.
3: That's true. But they've never come out and opposed hotel development publicly before. So now... But are they
0: opposing it for the right reasons? They are.
3: In fact, I re- recently read a letter by the Kaanapali Op- Operations Association that talked about what they want to do with the golf course um, right here at Kaanapali. There's somebody who wants to redevelop it into condos and an oceanfront restaurant right down at Black Rock by the Sheraton. and they're, uh, they're opposed to it. I could have written the letter for all the reasons that I've been citing for the last 20, 30
0: years. So the private sector is getting their act together.
3: They're getting it because it's, they're seeing that it's now affecting them.
0: We're talking to Albert Perez, the executive director of, uh, of Maui tomorrow, who likes doing this on the table all the time. I have to beat him up, <laughs> but I get it. It's okay. I forgive you. Um, when you. When you hear that the private sector is opposing it, Are they proposing solutions as well? Or are they just uh, opposing more development?
3: Well, it's just started, Peter. So that's all that I've seen to this point. But it's an encouraging sign.
0: So for those people listening to this show who are thinking of coming to Hawaii or returning to Hawaii, uh, what can they do in an up-close-and-personal way to get involved? Not that they're here on a mission. They're here on vacation. But while they're here, what can they do?
3: You know, there is a really... Let's let's remember that we're in Hawaii, and so the Hawaiian culture is really important. If you want an authentic experience and you want to learn about Hawaii, one of the best organizations that I'm aware of is Maui Cultural Lands org. That's your
0: website. No, that's well. Maui Cultural Lands is a you can get involved and volunteer. That's right. Yeah,
3: and they have they have uh, projects uh, in several places in West Maui, where you can do uh, planting. You can clear. Ancient Hawaiian uh, archaeological sites and heiau temples. It's very, very
0: interesting. Restoring native species. And by the way, no experience necessary. Just show up and wear the appropriate clothing and the appropriate shoes. They have instructions on
3: their website.
0: I bet they do. Speaking of websites, what's your website? It's maui-tomorrow.org. And we've been speaking to Albert Perez, the executive director of Maui Tomorrow. Albert, thank you so much. And thank you to all our guests on this CBS Radio Travel Hour, the attorney general of the state of Hawaii, Doug Chin, Shep Gordon, and Albert Perez. We'll see you next time on another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg. Bye-bye.